well after the year that we've had. I hope that everyone gets some kind of holiday or break during these summer months. I know that for some people you'll really be missing the opportunity to go off to a pool in the sun, to travel to Spain or Portugal or the Canaries or the Balearics. You'll be missing the chance to be beside the pool, dropping in for a swim every now and again, taking some shade under a parasol at the side. And for that reason, today's story may be difficult for you because it is set in a warm country beside a pool where people drop in from time to time and then take shade. Now, of course, this isn't a holiday resort. This is a place where people with many disabilities gathered. As Jesus arrived at Jerusalem, he went to the pool. In fact, it was a pair of pools with colonnades around them where people could shelter. And this was a place where people with many different disabilities would gather day by day. And the reason they did so was that the water of the pool was disturbed from time to time. And it was believed that if you could get into the water in that moment, then you would find healing. It's not really clear what was disturbing the water. Water engineers have thought about this and said, well, maybe there was some kind of intermittent underground spring and every time there was a surge, it disturbed the water. Others have said, well, maybe there was another pool that drained into this pool in a kind of irregular way. So when there was a flow of water from a higher pool, it caused a stirring of these lower pools. Whatever it was, people gathered there Perhaps it was just out of desperation in the hope that this, if nothing else, might bring them hope and healing. Or maybe there were some people with accounts of having been helped or healed by getting in the water when it was stirred. And so that increased their expectation. At some point it had come to be believed that it was an angel who stirred the waters. And uh, you see that in, well, in verse 4 of John 5, although most modern versions relegate that to a footnote, because that verse isn't in the most reliable early versions we have of John's Gospel. And it looks like that might have been an explanation which was either discovered or understood or just added later to try and... Uh, to try and explain what was going on. Verse 4 says, From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. Well, what happens at the pool on this occasion, in John chapter 5, is not the stirring of the water, but Jesus performing a miracle and healing a man who has been unable to walk for 38 years. And we know that in John's Gospel there are seven miracles which he calls signs to reveal God's glory. I listened to Harley's message on the first of these signs and he, he's, he's got a great section where he explains how uh, the, the signs or miracles in John's Gospel are very clearly done to reveal God's glory and so that people might believe in him. That's uh, exactly how it's explained in John 2.11 at the end of the first miracle, the changing of water into wine at Cana. The miracles are signs to reveal God's glory so that people might believe in him. And this emphasises the reason for believing in Jesus. It's because we see his glory. 
We don't believe in Jesus simply because we have been argued into it or because we've looked at the ethics of other religions and decided that Christianity is somewhat superior or even because we find the experience of Christian worship uplifting or preaching challenging. Those things are all good. But the reason we believe is because we have glimpsed the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ. John's testimony, which he spells out in the, uh, in the first chapter of his gospel, is this, the word became flesh and lived among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only Son, full of grace and truth. So we believe because we glimpse the glory of God. I remember when I first became a Christian believer as a teenager, and at the heart of that, was realising that you, it, you, it wasn't just that you could know about Jesus, but you could know him. You could experience his glory, his glorious presence in your life. Like you, I'm sure, there are just numerous times in the rhythm of my week when I'm seized again by the glory of Jesus as I pause to pray, or as I enter worship, or as I read the scriptures. I behold his glory. And that's what these signs are about, that we might see the glory of Jesus. In this one in particular, we see the glory of his power. This is the God of all creation at work, restoring that creation, at least restoring the two legs of the man who created in God's image needs healing. The glory of God's power is there and also the glory of God's love. He is someone who's been suffering for 38 years and Jesus sees his need. And in a great act of generous, generosity, kindness and mercy, brings healing to him. So the sign reveals God's glory. But I've got three simple things to notice about that. And the first is where the glory is revealed. Do you notice that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he doesn't immediately go to try and find the important people. He doesn't immediately go and find the hottest debate in the temple and get stuck into the argument. He doesn't even go on a sightseeing tour. The first thing he does is come to the place where the people with disabilities and great needs gather. Because the glory of God is most naturally seen in the place of greatest need. Grace occurs where people need God and know they need God. I read a book a few years ago, you might have seen it, by Pete Gregg, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement called Dirty Glory. He, he tells the story of a period in the life of that movement where they went to um, unusual and difficult places. Uh, he talks about um, setting up a prayer movement in the club culture in Ibiza and in a gang-controlled compound in Mexico. And how, as they prayed, they saw God powerfully at work. They saw his glory revealed in those kind of dirty places, not the most comfortable places, not the nicest places on the planet. God, who is above all, starts his mission in this world at the lowest place. Often the place of suffering and need or the place of shame and weakness. And of course the church reveals God's glory most intensely 
in the place of need. For those of us who live in the secure suburbs, God is always going to draw us to the hidden needs among the seemingly prosperous or push us out to the place of hurting and poverty beyond suburban comfort. That's how God works. Otherwise, we'll drift away from the path of Jesus. I remember reading a story about Thomas Aquinas, the great 13th century theologian and church leader. He once went for an audience with Pope Innocent II in one of his uh, tremendous palaces. And as they met, there was a great deal of money laid out on the table before him. And uh, Pope Innocent said to Thomas Aquinas, we are no longer in the age where the church can say, silver and gold have I none. To which Aquinas replied, and the church is no longer in the age when we can say, rise up and walk. A journey to comfort had moved the focus away from meeting the needs of those most desperate. How do you start? How do we start to let there be a glimpse of the glory of God in the most needy place? Well, what I notice in John 5 is that Jesus simply found someone he didn't say, right, I've got to sort everything out in this moment. He saw by the pool one person and ministered to them. And most of our caring, most of our loving that reveals the glory of Jesus happens one-to-one. -one. Of course, there's a place for big projects and we need, to, uh, we need to think big at times. But Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who in some ways in her life became a byword for showing the glory of God, the dirty glory of God in the needy places, once said, never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time and always start with the person nearest to you. So where is the glory of God revealed? In the place of need. Secondly, how is the glory revealed? Well, this pool that Jesus uh, visits was a place of superstition. People believed that if the water was disturbed, if you could get in at that point, you would be healed. I don't think it was more than a superstition, more than some wishful thinking maybe some uh, hope fulfillment kind of happened there, self-fulfillment, I'm not sure. What I do know is that when the glory of God is revealed in Jesus, it is revealed through a word, not simply a superstition. In verse eight, it says very clearly, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And that was the decisive moment when the glory of God appeared because Jesus spoke and his word was powerful. And of course, we know God's glory is first revealed in his powerful words in creation, let there be light. We know that through the Old Testament scriptures, the glory of God is revealed in the inspired words of poets and prophets. We know supremely in the new covenant that the word became flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is God's glory revealed? It's revealed in his word. Where is the trustworthy word for our lives? It's not with the political leaders, 
much as we might admire their desire to make a better society, political speech so often becomes polarised or focused on sectional interests. Where is the trustworthy word? It's not with the social media influences whose opinions are so fleeting and so easily bought. Where is the trustworthy word? It's not with the secular consensus that continually despiritualizes and disenchants life. Where is the trustworthy word? It's not with the self-help message that says we can fix our lives if we know the right techniques. No, the trustworthy word comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God in flesh, the Son who speaks the words of the Father. We find throughout the Bible and supremely embodied in Jesus the way to hope and holiness, to purpose and peace, and it comes through listening to and heeding his word. A core practice of following Jesus is encountering God in his word, reading, listening, reflecting. And there are, of course, more counter voices around us, more distractions around us than ever. And we might wring our hands saying, oh, but it's so hard to hear the voice of Jesus. Well, maybe. And yet we've got more ways of listening than ever. We've got the paper Bible, we've got the recorded versions, we've got the apps, we've got ways of reading in community online with other people. We can carry the Bible in our pockets, we can access it anywhere, we can highlight passages, we can set reminders with ease. However, we access the Word of God, we will encounter the glory of God. And I wonder over this summer period for us, which is often a time of resetting, of re-evaluating what's important, of reflecting on our habits. I'll say more about that in a moment. Perhaps this is a good time for just thinking, how do we make space for the word of God in our lives to encounter his glory? So where do we encounter God's glory? in the place of need? How do we encounter it? Through his powerful word. And finally, when is the glory revealed? What I notice in this passage is it happens on the Sabbath. The healing happens on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders complain about that. The Sabbath, of course, is fundamentally a good thing. It's a gift from God. It can be traced back to the seventh day of creation, to the Ten Commandments. It's a reminder of God's good working creation and the limitations of being human that we need to rest. The religious leaders at the time of Jesus had got a bad habit mixed in with a good habit. The bad habit was to complain when some people did good things on the Sabbath, and specifically Jesus healing someone. So it says in verse 9, the day on which this healing took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. In fact, the law didn't specifically forbid that, but the rabbi's interpretation of it did. What I want to highlight is that habits are vital, but we need the right habits. Sabbath is a good habit, a God-given habit. Criticising someone for doing good on the Sabbath is a bad habit. 
The thing about habits is we need to make sure we've got the right ones. Good habits arc towards holiness. Bad habits are destructive. We sometimes talk about virtue, living a good life. We might in Christian biblical language talk more about holiness. But it, it comes from the things that we do repeatedly. One good deed, one godly deed, doesn't make us holy. But a habit does. One virtuous moment doesn't make you a virtuous person. We hear plenty today about what's called virtue signaling, where someone tries to do one simple, maybe merely symbolic act to imply that uh, they are uh, wholly supportive of a good cause. Virtue signaling leaves us feeling, uh, feeling robbed of true goodness. It's the habits we cultivate. And as followers of Jesus, we're continually cultivating habits of humility, habits of loving kindness, habits of mercy and forgiveness, habits of reaching out to people in need. We see some of Jesus's habits in today's passage. He gets alongside people at their time of need. It's not just something he does on this one occasion. We know he does it repeatedly. He seeks God's healing and strength for other people again and again. He displays the glory of God in his life again and again. He knows the power of the word of God and exercises that again and again. It's said that it takes 66 days to form a habit. And I guess most people uh, listening now will have been followers of Jesus for more than 66 days. You know, they say, if, you are, uh, if you're going to start running, if you do it for 66 days, if you do it for two months, then it's not so much a struggle, it just becomes something that you do automatically. Or if you practice the piano for 66 days, then practice becomes uh, a natural part of your routine and not a special habit. Well, that's, uh, uh, you can debate whether 66 days is exactly precise, but what we know is that we've been Christians, most of us here, for more than 66 days, and we've already develop many good habits for following Jesus. But he continually is calling us to check that there aren't bad habits mixed in with those, like there were for the religious leaders at the time of Jesus, because they'll always be destructive. And I'd just like to leave us with this today. May our habits, may your habits, as individuals, as families, as members of Hillview Community Church together, may your habits be the same as the Lord Jesus. May you cultivate habits that reflect his glory. Not least when you give people, sorry, not least when you give yourself to people at their place of need. Not least when you hear and trust in his powerful word. So, May the Lord bless the community of Hillview Church. May Jesus be exalted in your hearts. And may his spirit lead and guide you into all holiness. For the glory of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.